The talk tonight is on uncovering ego, renunciation, and the hindrances. I was on the staff of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts in the late 70s when we had a visit from one of the most renowned meditation masters of the world, who was Mahasi Sayadaw. He was quite old at that time, and I think it was his first trip to the West. But in uh, the Theravadan countries of Southeast Asia, particularly Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka, he may have been the most influential monk of this century because he kind of uh, revived a meditation technique founded in the Vasudhimaga, one of the ancient texts uh, from the 5th century Christian era, and built a meditation technique around it that generated hundreds and hundreds of centers throughout uh, Southeast Asia. And it is the practice that we teach here of the continuity of awareness through sitting and walking and with the employment of the soft mental notes to label what our experience is. That was basically the contribution of Mahasi Sayadaw in this century. And it became enormously popular So it was his first visit to the West, and I had actually, as manager of the center, I had written the letter inviting him to come, and I was very excited about his arrival. So we went down to the Boston airport to pick him up. We waited at the gate where his plane was coming in from Asia, and everybody else got off the plane. And you can't miss bald men in orange curtains. And uh, we hadn't seen any of those yet. We thought the plane was empty, and we were wondering if they'd missed the flight out of Thailand or something. And then as we were standing there at the gate, out they came marching, out through the gate, slowly, mindfully. (laughs) The senior Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, in front, and all five of them were carrying fans, brown cloth fans that were embroidered with the writing, Mahasi Sayadaw, 1979 World Tour. (laughs) (laughs) It may not have been the Rolling Stones, but uh, it was just as exciting for us. And actually, the fan is a very uh, significant symbol in Asian uh, Dharma because the monks actually often speak behind it. They will sometimes give whole Dharma talks holding a fan in front of them. And by the end of the evening, you may never have known who was speaking. And that points to the important truth that the words of the Dharma are really what's important and not the personality of the speaker. We thought about doing that here, but we knew you'd recognize Sylvia, so we we gave it up. So Mahasi Sayadaw came to our center and gave a two-week retreat that uh, was open uh, to the public, and I had the good fortune to sit it. It was very interesting. It was my first real exposure to a traditional Asian teacher. And uh, I found out that they teach quite differently than my teachers at that time, Joseph and Jack and Sharon and Christopher, had been teaching. Uh, They don't tell Sufi stories. 
they don't quote Mary Oliver poems, <laughs> and they don't uh, give many descriptions of embarrassing things that happened to them in second grade. And basically what the monks did uh, was to repeat the words of the Buddha. They basically repeated the words of the Buddha. And I was a little, I think, young in my practice days then, and I didn't fully appreciate what they had to offer because they were repeating the words with a deep understanding from their own personal experience of the meaning and the profundity of that message. And I was looking for Mary Oliver poems. So um, it was sometimes a frustrating experience for me at that point in my time. And the visit was enlivened by a little bit of controversy. At one point, uh, somebody in the hall asked Mahasi Saidao a question about sexuality. And, you know, going to an 80-year-old celibate monk <laughs> for questions about sexuality is like coming to me for financial advice. But uh, he did answer, and his response was that um, sex is gross, base, and disgusting. <laughs> so that caused a few ripples caused a few ripples in mind waves until one of the staff members figured out the solution. They said, um, oh, actually what happened was the translator just misstated it. What he actually said is that it's engrossing, basic, and worth discussing. <laughs> so, then everybody felt better about the Saidas. So there was sort of a, I, I'd say, a little collision of cultures in our early, my early encounters with Asian Buddhism and the Asian traditions. And over the years, I've, I feel I've bridged that a lot and feel very close in spirit now to those teachers that I spent time with in the early years. But one of the things that struck me uh, at the time, Mahasi Saida came over with about four of his senior monks, including Usi Lananda, who's still living in the Bay Area and teaching on the peninsula and Ujanaka, who now has uh, his own center outside of Rangoon, some of our friends have practiced with. And the one thing that struck me at the time that really impressed me about them was just the power of their being, the power of their presence. I felt when I was around them that I was in the middle of a vibration that I had never experienced before uh, with a Westerner. There was a degree of stillness, in their being, a degree of uh, composure, a power of innocence, and a power of purity that I hadn't found in the teachers that I'd been studying with. It really impressed me a lot. And as I reflected and heard the stories of their lives, most of them had ordained quite young as novices and then moved into the monkhood, I felt that what I was feeling in that transmission was the power of renunciation that was a thread that had run through their lives possibly before they were even teenagers. It's not uncommon uh, in Asia for uh, novices to ordain at age seven or eight, to be schooled in the monasteries, and then to make the transition to full monkhood when they're uh, 18, 20, 21. So I felt the purity of that entire lifestyle in a system that cultivated mindfulness and concentration and virtue, and in a system where their focus from so early on had just been single-pointed on the Dharma. I felt the power of their renunciation.
There was an unshakability I felt that came from that lifestyle because they weren't looking for anything from us. They had their air ticket home. That was really all they needed. And they could just be simply themselves in this really strong and unshakable way. It was a really great lesson. Well, we too develop this same kind of strength in our retreat experience. Coming into a silent retreat like this is a major act of renunciation for us. The renunciation that we carry out here, I think, works on a lot of levels. We may never even know all the levels that it's operating on until years afterwards. One of the things I think that happens, it's fairly clear, is when we come into an environment that's this simple, the mind settles and calms. And we may feel that already just in the first few days of being here. One other aspect of the silence that um, I've often appreciated is when we uh, don't speak and we don't act very much, we really don't get in as much trouble. (laughs) So in classical terms, it's said that this really protects our virtue. It protects our karma, protects our sila. There's also a great strength in self-sufficiency. We find that we can bear these conditions, even though they're difficult. You know, they're difficult for all of us. I just did a a period of retreat this fall at the center in Massachusetts. And I've done a lot of retreats over the years. I'm used to the experience. I had a fairly good uh, experience in the retreat, nothing of major difficulty. And yet I still found it arduous to go through the routine of sitting and walking and staying in silence and not having human contact day after day. So I think that for all of us, there is a difficulty in dedicating ourselves, in giving ourselves to this kind of lifestyle. And I want to honor and respect your work with that. I know it's not easy. And yet this kind of dedication and bearing these hardships really brings an inner strength that I don't know any other way to come by. And I actually believe that um, we'll all face death a lot more comfortably because of the time that we've spent in situations like this. I have a great faith in that. So renunciation is a very powerful uh, aspect of practice. It's one of the ten paramis. Now, the Buddha made lots of lists, as you know, and he made lots of lists of the good things in life and the difficult things in life. The paramis are one of the lists of the good things. Actually, they're referred to as the beautiful factors of mind. And this is a list of the qualities of mind that when we develop them through action, have the power to liberate us. These are the qualities that the bodhisattva, over it is said, many lifetimes brought to fruition so that he could uh, be born and come to fulfillment and liberation in that life as Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha. So it is really the cultivation of these ten qualities that um, ripen the mind, that fulfill the mind, and bring it to the possibility of liberation. The beautiful thing about the paramis is that they are intentions that accompany actions. And as such, we can develop them in daily life 
as well as in the retreat setting. So they're not something we need to leave behind at the gate of the retreat center when we go home, but they're practices and cultivations that we can take with us always in all situations. This aspect of renunciation is really at the core of uh, spiritual practice in our uh, Buddhist tradition. This is a quote from the Buddha himself who said, there are these roots of trees, there are these empty huts. Meditate, bhikkhus, do not delay or else you will regret it later. This is our instruction to you. Fortunately, we have something a little better than an empty hut or the root of a tree. Uh, At Spirit Rock, we're uh, practicing not exactly the austere form of asceticism, but um, we've given this its own name. We call it the upper middle path. It seems to work also, so we invite you to join. There are many beautiful stories in the tradition of renunciation. Um, One autobiography that I like a lot is the autobiography of a Tibetan Lama uh, named Shabkar. He was born in 1781, so it was the time that we were, uh, you know, fighting fighting for our independence and um, killing the native people of this country. And he practiced to great fruition and wrote one of the most beautiful Dharma books that I know of called Flight of the Garuda, which is in the Dzogchen tradition. And when he was 25, he entered his first three-year retreat on his own. He went to an island in a remote part of Tibet and stayed there through all the seasons, of course, without any heat, and just carried on with the practices that his teacher had given him in solitude. And in fact, there were a few other meditators on the island and they would come over to ask him for advice. And he thought that was interrupting his retreat too much. So one year he mudded up the front of his cave so that he couldn't get out and nobody else could get in. And he meditated that way for a year. This is the account of one of his years and his food supply. He said, throughout the year, one of the uh, local people occasionally brought me goat's milk and curd. In the summer, some vegetables were to be found. By the end of autumn, however, my supplies were exhausted, and for two months, I was reduced to eating only a thin soup of tzampa, which is roasted barley grain. Can you imagine two months eating a thin soup of tzampa? It makes you appreciate oatmeal, doesn't it? (laughs) Never sounded so good. This was one of his statements to his teacher when he went into retreat he called his teacher father. Until I achieve unchanging stability of mind, I won't remain in busy worldly places, but will stay alone in isolated places of retreat. Father, accept this offering made to please you. The length of my practice shall equal the length of my life. The length of my practice shall equal the length of my life. Coming into a situation like this, we also make a great renunciation. We give up family and friends and home and pets, our choice of meals, our entertainments, our restaurants, so many things of our life 
You know, I think if this was imposed in prisons, it would be outlawed as cruel and unusual punishment. And yet we take it up, you know, we take it up gladly. And this level of giving up can, um, can bring its own uh, challenges. It can bring a sense of insecurity, of loneliness or isolation, of uh, feeling disconnected. Sometimes it can bring up a sense of unworthiness because we're not getting the contact and the feedback that affirms us as we do in our daily life. Sometimes we might wonder, what have I gotten myself into and why did I do this? And I'm reminded of another story from my early days at the meditation center in Massachusetts. There was a fellow who used to come around quite often for retreats. And uh, he was very worldly. In fact, we heard that he had made a lot of money in uh, the real estate market. And in uh, those years, people of my age did not have a lot of money, did not make a lot of money. And so we all looked on him with some fascination. Wow, this guy really scored big in the real estate market. He ended up taking robes and ordaining with Ajahn Sumedho, who by that time, a student of Ajahn Chah, had uh, set up a monastery in England, early monastery in England. And we were all amazed because he seemed so worldly. And in fact, he said to Ajahn Sumedho, I have all this money. He said, what shall I do with it? Ajahn Sumedho said, give it away. Stick with me and you aren't going to need a penny of it. And he did that. He gave all his money away. And uh, he, he said about a year later, you know, I was just about to invest that money in oil stocks. And he said, if I had, it would be worth a million dollars today. And this is 1980. So he, get, he gave away a lot. And then entering the life of the renunciate, the, the monk's life, is its own challenge. It is arduous. And for such a worldly person, it was difficult. And we often said of him that we felt that his, um, his past virtue had kind of dragged him kicking and screaming into Semedo's arms. And I, I often think that way about coming on retreat. If I can just let my virtue take me there, once I get there, I know I'll be okay. But sometimes it feels like I've been dragged kicking and screaming. So what is the purpose of this kind of renunciation? Why do we put ourselves in these situations? Part of the beauty, the real essence of renunciation is that when we let go of so many outer activities and our life becomes stripped bare in a way, what really stands out are the inner workings of our hearts and minds. Just as these little uh, weeping trees, I think they're willows, in the courtyard, losing their leaves now, you see so clearly the structure of the branches. When those trees were full of leaves, it just looked like a big bush, and you couldn't really tell what supported the leaves. Now that the leaves have fallen, the branches are really clearly revealed. So when our outer activities fall away, we are just left with the inner workings of our heart and mind. And that is really where we learn. That is where uh, we go to school in this practice. We are really here to understand how our hearts and minds work. This is what wisdom is about. Particularly the wisdom that we want to understand is what activities of heart and mind and body lead to happiness, what activities of heart and mind and body 
lead to sorrow. This is really what we take up as the central theme of our investigation. And this, in this situation, that's all so clearly revealed. It's a little bit like Gil said this morning. When we focus very clearly on the breath for a period of time, it tends to highlight whatever is not of this simple awareness of the breath. The other thoughts and plans and hopes and fears and wants that come in are so apparent because we're used to seeing the breath in its bare simplicity. Similarly with this situation, it's so simple that when other things come in, we see them, sometimes for the first time. Someone said in an interview today, boy, this is really challenging. I'm seeing again and again and again all these judgments of other people, all my opinions, the full extent of my comparing mind. It's just leaping out at me. And this is part of the result. Sometimes it seems like we're going backwards. This stuff seems like tough stuff to see, to handle. It's kind of like one teacher said, Ruth Dennison said that, uh, you know, self-knowledge is never good news. (laughs) So sometimes in this setting, we see a lot of stuff that doesn't look like good news, but it actually is, because it's in the seeing of it that we can learn from it and become freer. There's another um, story of renunciation that I wanted to pass on. There's a book that's just come out about uh, an English woman named Ani Tenzin Palmo, who uh, was born, I think, in uh, 1943 or 41 in London and took robes in the Tibetan tradition in 1964, I think at the age of 21, in India, and then uh, felt a strong longing to be in solitary retreat and went way up in a cave in the Himalayas, 13,000 feet up, and spent most of 12 years practicing on her own in that cave. She's now come out of the solitude, returned to the West, and is founding a center in Italy and beginning to teach. And she passed through Spirit Rock last year and uh, gave some teachings and had lunch with some of us. And I said to her, you know, I have so much admiration for what you did I feel it's completely beyond my capacity to do something like that. And she said, she was very humble and very simple, she said, you know, I only did what I wanted to do. (laughs) I just felt drawn to be there, and I just did what I wanted to do. So she's very, um, very humble and uh, very, very dedicated. So someone asked her, actually as a journalist who wrote this book, uh, who, who didn't, I guess, know a lot about the practice. And this journalist approached her and said, um, don't you feel you're escaping when you go into retreat like that? Don't you feel you're escaping you know, the real realities of this world and the things that people deal with uh, day by day? And her reply was, uh, not at all. To my mind, worldly life is an escape. When you have a problem, you can turn on the television, phone a friend, or go out for a coffee. In a cave, however, you have no one to turn to but yourself. When problems arise, you have no choice but to go through with them and come out the other side. In a cave, you face your own nature in the raw, and you have to find a way of dealing with it. I think this really expresses well our situation here. 
We face our own being in the raw, and that's where our learning is. The inner life, when the externals drop away, becomes so vivid, becomes so alive, it stands out, really maybe for the first time. Sometimes dreams get very vivid. Uh, People often report that the dream life has become very strong, very rich, seems very meaningful, and there's a strong temptation to pick up the dream and kind of figure out what it means. Someone asked Joseph Goldstein a question about that in a retreat. He said, I have these really uh, important dreams. And you know, Jung said that um, if, you, if you don't analyze a dream, it's like receiving a letter that you don't open. And Joseph's reply was, you know, when you're in retreat, it's a good idea not to open your mail. <laughs> so that's actually a good piece of advice. Enjoy the dreams while they're there and kind of leave them there as you wake up. Sometimes our emotional reactions become really strong. This is the phenomenon that's become known as yogi mind. When small things in our daily life look like they're huge things here. When I entered retreat this fall in Massachusetts, we'd had a sort of small board meeting the day before and there were a lot of issues that we discussed that are going to impact Spirit Rock for a while. I got into retreat and about a week into retreat I started thinking about all these issues and I felt I just absolutely had to write a letter to our executive director because they were so important and my input on them was absolutely crucial to the future sustenance of Spirit Rock. You know, of course it wasn't and I'm glad I never put the pen to paper, but it seemed awfully big at the time. So this situation is really kind of designed to bring forth the difficult mind states that are still lurking in us. And what happens is when we simplify and we meditate, we turn our mind to our bare experience, we get one of two outcomes. One possibility is we connect with our bare experience directly. We're with the breath, we're with the body, we're with sounds. And the meditation deepens, the concentration and mindfulness go on a steady path of deepening. The other alternative is that we get whatever is blocking our ability to be present. Then if there's a block to our ability to be present, that's where the learning comes from. What's beautiful about this process is that it really doesn't matter which way our experience is going. It really doesn't so much matter if we're with the chosen object directly, the breath or body, or if what we're meeting is the impediment or the obstacle to being with that chosen object. Because either way is the perfect deepening of our practice. The process of this unfolding, the process of our deepening, is so organic. It's so natural. It is just like how a rose knows which petal to unfold next so that the whole bud can come from this tightly coiled mass to the full flowering. Our practice is just the same way. In our thinking mind, we really don't have a clue which petal is to open next. Sometimes we might think we came on a retreat to work on one particular issue. And as the retreat unfolds, it's something entirely different. Sometimes we think we came because we want to recapture a meditation experience 
that was profound and insightful and transformative from an earlier retreat. And sometimes that experience never presents itself again in our life. But what you can trust in is that the experience that is presenting itself is the experience that you need to learn from. I think that's really the beauty of the simplicity of awareness or mindfulness. Because mindfulness doesn't inject anything different in the situation, but only connects with what's already there, it allows the uh, coming into life, coming into flowering of what is already there without really adding anything new. So sometimes as we sit, we feel the deepening of mindfulness and concentration. Sometimes as we sit, what we feel is the releasing of accumulations, the inner holdings stored in body and mind from past experience that has never quite had the time or the wisdom to be digested. It's a bit like fasting. When we stop taking in food, then what comes out are the toxins that have stored in the body. And by coming out, they can be released. So in our practice, the stored accumulations, the tensions of body and mind, the underlying knots, begin to come to the surface. And in that coming to the surface, there's difficulty, there's struggle, there's conflict, there's pain. But there's also the possibility of release, of freedom. So much of the fruit of our practice is this unburdening process, the letting go of all the holdings from the past that have weighed on us unconsciously and now have the possibility of really being released by that bringing into awareness. Carl Jung said, the process of enlightenment is not one of throwing circles of light around everywhere. It comes from making the darkness conscious. This latter process, however, is disagreeable and therefore unpopular. But this is what our work is. This is a part of what we're engaged in. So it's very important to trust in the uh, miracle of this unfolding that what is presenting itself is what we need to learn from. If we start to doubt that, we can really get in trouble because we think that what is presenting itself is because we've landed in this lousy situation where, you know, the room's too cold and it's raining all the time and nobody's friendly to me and people don't make eye contact when I go by. And if we could just get out of this lousy situation, everything would be great again. But actually, you know, of course, it's the same mind, whether we're here or at home. And the same underlying structure is being shown. When I started this retreat in the fall, I went through a a lot of resistance at different points to the arduousness, to the weather, to periods of walking when I didn't feel like walking. And I'd go through these periods of real aversion, and I'd start to blame it on the walking, or the weather, or the facility, or something else. And I finally connected. Oh, 
You know, there are times in my life when I really drag my heels too. I feel this resistance in my daily life, in many different situations that I just don't feel like doing at that point. And I came to see this is just resistance. It's just a non-acceptance. When I could frame it like that, and I knew it wasn't the situation, then I could start to see the flimsiness of the resistance. And I asked myself the question, what would this moment be like if I met it with acceptance instead of resistance? And at times that veil just pulled away. And just pulled away. And there was no more resistance to what before had been a solid mass of aversion. So there are great joys in renunciation, as well as the difficulties. The kind of clarity that we can see when we see an old pattern just evaporate before our eyes. There's a huge relief and a joy in that. The sense of stillness and peace that we touch. The heartfulness, the sensitivity to nature and each other. In terms of the difficulties that get revealed, uh, the Buddha talked about a number of ways of uh, classifying them. One of the uh, key lists is the list of the five hindrances. I know you all have heard about these many times before, and I'd like to talk about them briefly tonight. Another of the lists is uh, what in Pali is called the kilesas, the three kilesas, often translated as defilements, but the real root is torments of mind. There's a lot of overlap between these two lists. So before talking a little about the hindrances, I wanted to explain uh, how I see the difference between the two. The way I understand the hindrances is that these are the forces in particular that greet the meditator. These are the forces that when a meditator sits down and makes the intention to be mindful and to pay direct attention to our experience, these are the particular forces that oppose that mindfulness. So they're a little different from the list of the kilesas or torments of mind, which are a lot more universal. They are the roots of suffering in all beings, in all times, in all situations, which are considered to be greed, aversion, and delusion. So the hindrances the Buddha talked about were the forces of sense desire, of ill will or aversion, of sleepiness, of restlessness, and doubt. You'll notice that the first two really overlap with the kilesas, very similar to greed and aversion, and point to this central tendency of mind that is always trying to change our experience. It's really the movement toward pleasure and away from pain that keeps the mind moving all the time, that makes it difficult for us to experience peace. This is, in a way, the pivoting of the mind, always trying to gain pleasure and avoid the unpleasant. So let's talk a little about um, the different forces that that visit the mind. I'm sure you've seen many times already the wanting mind that comes in practice. It may be a wanting for something externally, missing some things from home that we've left through renunciation. It may be a wanting for something here, an experience of concentration or peace or stillness or a particular meditation experience. 
One of the underlying assumptions with wanting is that there's going to be a lasting happiness if we get what is wanted. And this is one of the things that we have to question with every hindrance, the difference between the story of the hindrance and the feeling of the hindrance. If we're taken in by the story of the hindrance, we're we're, uh, taken away from this moment because the hindrance of desire is always pointing to something in the future. If we kind of follow that arrow, we're taken away from our present experience and we're deceived. So this is sort of the trick of the hindrances. We are deceived out of mindfulness. But we can actually take that energy, turn it around and look directly at the hindrance itself. And then in that, we're reestablished in mindfulness. So instead of looking at the object that desire is pointing at, we become familiar with the feeling of desire itself. How that toppling forward feels in mind and body, that reaching out. And we question, is it really the lack of the object that leads to the suffering? Or is it desire itself that is difficult to experience? With aversion, the feeling is that the situation is just not good enough. There's something wrong with the situation, the food or the people or the temperature or the hall or the teachings or whatever. That's where the problem is. The Buddha was meeting with uh, a group of monks and nuns, and he said, "Um, did you see that jackal that just ran out of the underbrush? So the jackal ran out of the underbrush and it sat for a moment in the open. And then it didn't stay long and it ran into the hollow of a tree. And it sat down in the hollow of a tree for a moment and it didn't stay long, it got up, it ran away and it uh, lay down in the forest. And then it got up from lying down and ran away somewhere else. He said everywhere it went, it blamed its situation. It wasn't comfortable in the undergrowth, it wasn't comfortable in the open, it wasn't comfortable in the hollow of the tree, and it wasn't comfortable in the forest. It blamed the undergrowth. It blamed the open. It blamed the hollow of the tree. And it blamed the forest. He said the problem was with none of these. The problem was the jackal had mange. Mange was the problem. Mange was the reason the jackal suffered, not the situation. Aversion is kind of like that. We kind of feel like we're suffering because of the situation, but the actual source of the suffering is our own disliking of it. And when we can drop the disliking, the situation can be just fine, can be accepted. One of the most kind of insidious ways that aversion turns, of course, is toward ourselves, where we feel that we're not worthwhile or we can't accept ourselves, that we're not complete. The Dalai Lama came to the center in Massachusetts in 1979. Uh, The time he wasn't as famous as he is now. And there was a question from the audience about this feeling of not being worthy, not feeling worthwhile. And the Dalai Lama just said very directly, that is not true. You mustn't think that way. 
you are very, very worthwhile as much as any being that is created, as much as any product of nature. Trust in that. I had a uh, friend who was also a monk in Thailand who had been there longer than I had. And after I was ordained, my preceptor asked me to stop at his monastery on the way up to this practice wat near Chiang Mai that I was going to practice at. He was a Western monk, so I stopped to visit him in Chiang Mai, and we hung out and got to know each other a bit. And he had this really strong metta vibe. Everybody loved this guy. He had been around quite a while, and in the mornings he would stay at his hut, he would practice, he would be quiet. In the afternoon he would receive visitors. Both Thai people came to visit him because he spoke fluent Thai. Westerners came to visit him. He'd give his afternoons to being with people and counseling them on their life or their meditation practice. We went out for alms round the first morning I was there. He had the biggest alms bowl I had ever seen. And he had a waistline that sort of matched it. He was, he was doing very well, as we say, in the monkhood. I mean, the bowl wasn't quite this big, but it wasn't far off. And uh, I was looking forward to going on alms round with him. So we started off, uh, we set off. He went in front because he was the senior monk and I went behind. And then uh, these two novices were coming with us younger the boys around the monastery. And I was a little puzzled because normally the novices don't go on alms round. So we set off and uh, we'd just gone, you know, a couple of blocks and his bowl was full and my bowl was over full. I wasn't accepting anymore. And uh, we ducked into an alley and uh, he called the novices up and they opened their robes and I saw that each of them was carrying a plastic bag slung over their shoulder. And he took all the food that he had collected from his bowl and put it in their plastic bags. They covered their robes back up again. His bowl was empty. And we walked on and did that a couple of more times. And then we went back to the monastery and he shared his food around and he fed probably a dozen people from his morning alms round. And those same people lined up to give him food every morning because they knew he would walk that way and because they loved him so much. He had this great energy, he was always giving, and uh, the people appreciated it. Well, in talking with him personally, he said that he had spent the first nine years that he was in robes working with his self-hatred. I was absolutely amazed because I didn't see a trace of it. What I saw was this wonderful, spacious quality of of affection and kindness and compassion. And through his practice, primarily through his meditation practice, he had completely transformed that trait in him. The third hindrance of sleepiness, I think we've talked quite a bit about already. Just one other um, suggestion I'd make is to be really clear in your noting of sleepiness or dullness. And see if the noting itself serves to sharpen the attention and give a little bit of break in the dullness. Also take a look and see if you're averse to the sleepiness because sometimes the aversion can actually increase the dullness. See if you can open to it with real acceptance. With restless attention, give it a very big space. Make the mind very wide, 
make the mind soft. Sometimes when we get restless, we think, oh, I need to get concentrated again. So we try to really shrink the focus down uh, and make a narrow focus on the breath so that we can get concentrated, but that tends to bottle the energy up and can make it more restless, more explosive. So let the mind be very wide, very soft. can be helpful with restlessness to focus on uh, some point low in the body, maybe the contact of the seat with the cushion, just that touch point. Very simple, very clear touch point to ground the attention. Doubt is said to be the most insidious of the hindrances because when we believe in it, it cripples our practice. We stop paying attention, we stop deepening. As William Blake said, if the sun would doubt, it would immediately go out. And that's what happens with our practice when we doubt. So with doubt, it's important to reflect on your intention, which we've uh, been discussing in the early days of the retreat. Reflect on your motivation. Reflect on earlier retreats and the benefits that you found in the practice. Then it's also helpful to look at what came before the doubt. You know, doubt usually doesn't come after you've just had that really crystal clear, still sitting where you felt absolutely peaceful for 45 minutes. Somehow that's not usually when the doubt arises. So see if before the doubt came, there was a difficult experience. This really came clear to me when I was doing a self-retreat a few years ago. I was staying in a a small cabin in upstate New York. And I had uh, chosen to go there for a two-month self-retreat in October and November. I was quite alone. Um, Every few days, a friend would come along and bring me food that I'd requested, but otherwise I didn't see people at all. And uh, I was a California guy at the time, and I thought... uh, You know, October will be nice weather, and then usually the first snows come about Thanksgiving, so I should be able to make it through October, November. Okay, so I just went with my tennis shoes and my Birkenstocks. (laughs) Bad decision. Because the first snows started coming in early November. And there I was with my tennis shoes trying to do walking meditation. And my feet were getting very cold and very wet, and I was getting frustrated with that. So I took to tying uh, plastic produce bags around my feet, and then I'd go do walking meditation in the snow, and that was okay until the produce bag wore out, and then I'd get cold feet again. Then uh, there was about a two-week period where I didn't see the sun. It was snowing and raining and gray and cold, and I just felt very, very oppressed by the weather and uh, feeling gloomy and disillusioned, and the solitude was difficult for me. And I just kind of went into this this funk, and I thought, I need to go back to California. You know, I'm sure it's much more pleasant than that now in California. Actually, it was about this time of year. And I was starting to think about how I could go home and so on. And then I suddenly connected, oh, this is doubt. It took me about a day, but I realized, oh, this is doubt. And then it took me a little bit longer, but I realized, oh, just before I started doubting, I was just feeling some kind of despair. All the, all the things together had just combined to bring up this kind of despair in me that I wasn't comfortable with, that I hadn't felt before, and I just didn't like. And that was really what was at the root of the doubt. So when I could see that, oh, well, then I was back in the despair. But that was a lot better than being in the doubt.
because at least there was clarity. So with all these difficult energies, hey, clarity's worth a lot. With all these difficult energies of the hindrances that will inevitably arise as a part of the situation, a part of the deepening of our practice, what we really need to uh, think of with them is not that we want them to go away, but to find out that we have the potential to make friends with them. So not relating with them with a sense of aversion or wanting them to disappear, but opening to these experiences directly with a sense of real acceptance. It may not happen the first time that we see a particular desire or a form of aversion, but it calls out a deeper strength from us than we maybe knew that we had, that we can actually accept them and understand them. Because really, they're just forms of energy until we invest. They're quite impersonal. It's not my anger or your anger. It's just anger. So can we open and see them with a friendly kind of attention? And mindfulness has this quality of friendliness in it. And if we can, this is really a miracle of practice. Because what happens is in a moment of difficulty, whether it's a moment of aversion or desire or fear, in that moment, if we can be aware and open We're transforming that whole moment from a moment of difficulty, a moment of suffering, and a moment of the unwholesome, really into a moment of the awakened mind. We're kind of giving birth right in the middle of the suffering. We're giving birth to the qualities of clarity, of friendliness, of compassion, of acceptance. And that's like magic. There's no technique that can do this, but it's something that we learn from doing it again and again and again in our practice. And every time we're able to do it, it comes more easily the next time. This is really the alchemy of our practice. This is the transformation of our suffering directly, moment by moment, into the awakened mind. One of my Tibetan teachers, a young lama named Sokni Rinpoche, said that the sacred point of our practice is the liberation of confusion. The sacred point of our practice is the liberation of confusion. I'd just like to close with a quotation from another Tibetan. This is a teacher from the 12th century named Gampopa, who was a disciple of Milarepa. And he had a little poem that he called The Four Blessings, that are referred to as The Four Blessings of Gampopa. This is put in the form of a prayer or a supplication, and it doesn't matter so much whom the prayer is directed toward. It can be directed toward uh, the teacher, could be directed to the Buddha, could be directed to the Dharma, or to life itself. But these are the four blessings of Gampopa. Grant your blessings so that my mind follows the Dharma. Grant your blessings so that my dharma practice becomes the path. Grant your blessings so that the path clarifies confusion.
grant your blessings so that confusion dawns as wisdom. Let's sit for just a minute. So the time now is a little before 8. There's a little over 45 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.